This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. We are now joined by Professor Gwilin, who is a experienced um, surgeon uh, focusing on upper limb management, and he's just delivered a very uh, captivating talk at the Royal Society of Medicine's Trauma Symposium, focusing on humerus fractures. Uh, that's both proximal humerus fractures and humeral shaft fractures. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to uh, talk again. So what I'd like to do is start by talking about uh, our mid-shaft humeral fractures. And my first question is, um, what is the reasons for why we need something like the HUSH trial? And what current evidence exists for management of um, mid-shaft humeral fractures? Thanks. So so the the HUSH trial has been a part of my life for the last four years and will be a part of my life for the next four years. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty big undertaking. It's essentially, it's a randomized control trial looking into the optimum management for humeral shaft fractures, uh, which is something that's been investigated before, but but to our mind and to the mind of our uh, our funders, not to a level that can change national practice. So our trial is looking to take all patients uh, with humeral shaft fractures and allocate them either into uh, functional bracing uh, or into surgical fixation and then see how they get on over a year and at 12 months compare their outcomes uh, to see if one is more effective. And in parallel to that, to look at the cost effectiveness both for the, uh, for the system, for the NHS, uh, and also trying to pick apart some of the areas that trials have been criticised before for the cost implications for the patient. So um, return to work, uh, ability to drive, need, need for care from others. Um, so hopefully it will bring both those aspects of cost effectiveness in as well. That's brilliant. And if we talk about um, the evidence that currently exists, so you did mention during your talk about the FISH RCT, um, and it's quite interesting because they are looking at a similar sort of thing, but obviously the hush is a bit more, um, a bit larger and, and, and has various other aspects to it. Would you mind just going through the FISH RCT and how that may have influenced or may be influencing the way that you're, you're conducting this trial? Yeah, so the FISH was um, both the highlight and low light of that year for me. Um, highlight because it's a really well-conducted study uh, and shows that other people are having the same dilemmas that we are around the world. And, and it was the low light because I think it was, I think I was three months into our funding when that got published in JAMA. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a, as a researcher try, who wants to, you know, produce the best and first big papers in these things that was upsetting initially uh, but the uh, I went to our trials team and said well how can it be that you know this trial's taken uh, eight to your patients and you're trying to get an answer and you're telling me we need to recruit 350 patients and trying to get an answer uh, and there's some statistical reasons why we think this uh, trial is sorry the hush trial that is is more robust and can answer some of the more nuanced questions uh, FISH was a study conducted in Finland uh, in two centres uh, and was run by a guy who's become a bit of a pen pal of mine. I've never met him, but he seems like a really nice guy on, um, on email. 
uh, and is fascinating for two reasons. First of all, he's got 11 children, um, and as a man who struggles with two, I've got utter respect for him. Um, and secondly, is the fact that he uh, he was on call every day, all day, for humor shaft fractures uh, within the two university hospitals in his in his city. Um, so as soon as somebody got a humor shaft fracture, um, they called him. He went in and then attempted to, to recruit and consent the patients. Uh, I, we're not doing that. Uh, we are in 36 sites around the UK, so I have got an excuse. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, it was a it was a huge undertaking and and was you know like I said I've got nothing but respect for the way it was conducted and and as a consequence published in the highest possible level of journal was it was in JAMA. Um, Fish conclusion was the fact that on average whether or not you were treated in a splint or treated with surgery your outcomes at 12 months were essentially the same on a dash there was the the minimal clinically important difference wasn't achieved there was a secondary analysis which is the bit why I think hush is indicated and that is the fact that if you when you take the people that didn't unite with their initial brace treatment and then operated on them then their outcomes were not as good as people who operated on straight off the bat. And secondly, because of the way the analysis is done uh, and what's called intention to treat, it means that those people who had a non-union and then were surgically operated on and went to union were still included in the non in the brace category of the analysis, which is the robust and appropriate thing to do. But because the numbers involved just means that the story potentially gets slightly uh, watered down. And because of that, you know the the team and thankfully a group of amazing uh, principal investigators around the country still think it's worth their time and effort to recruit to a bigger study to to give us a really UK focus but you hopefully internationally relevant study. Thank you very much. Now, if we just go back a bit towards the basics of how we should be managing humeral shaft fractures, you started your talk by going over the non-operative management strategies that have been employed in the past. Um, so my question is, why do we use a brace? Why not a hanging cast? Why not, you know, a Valpau dressing or something else? Yeah. Some of these other um, older um, techniques that have been described. Yeah, no, I think that I think that trying to de devise. So when you're developing a study, um, you really want to pitch your best your best players against each other. So you really want to take the 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 best example of non-operative treatment and either the best example or the most commonly used example of intervention B usually in our, in our work that's surgery of some sort and as a consequence you go through all of the literature looking for non-op treatments and you, you've listed the big hitters there so hanging cast um, which when I have conversations with people there's still a real misconception of what the hanging cast is and what it does and I think it's probably now rooted in the MCQs in exams because a classic even back at medical school you know when when we write and then revise the questions for medical street medical finals there's always a stem in there well sorry there's not always a stem in there if there's a stem in there about humor shaft fractures then one of the descriptors will always be a hanging cast hanging cast was when it's described as a very heavy sort of five kilo type piece of plaster of Paris that dangles from your arm and is supposed to pull the fracture straight. Therefore, it only works if you're standing up straight. Um, and we have the anecdotal uh, suggestion that that's more likely to distract. It makes it straight, but it is more likely to distract a fracture, which we know doesn't help your chances of developing union. I think hanging cast now is, is a 
personally is a term that we want to throw out as much as we can because it, it can be done really badly and, and you know it's very difficult to standardize that um, other things we've talked about in the past were those abduction splints so the things like the, the cartoon man or woman in a in a splint with a 90 degrees out to the side and again probably effective um, in terms of holding a fracture uh, stable but impractical um, I don't know the numbers for things like pressure injuries around the skin but more importantly I mean it's just a nightmare trying to get through a door let, let alone anything else so we've, we've come down to this um, the the pattern now where we followed uh, Sarmiento's uh, recipe for treating it because he describes an excellent outcome um, and that is to put in to a co-optation splint, which is a, a splint where the cast goes over the side of the shoulder and then under the armpit into the axilla um, and gives the arm some stability whilst that initial swelling goes down. Um, and it just stops the thing from blowing around in the breeze. People don't get so much clunking and clicking and therefore hopefully don't get so much risk of, uh, of secondary nerve injury. And then as soon as people are more comfortable in that, then convert them to a co-optation splint uh, with all of the, the theoretical biomechanics behind hydrostatic pressure and centralizing the bone. Each, each time you contract your muscle. So it's, it's an attractive physiological process. Um, and in lots of people it seems very effective. But unfortunately, the, the, the data which Samrianto first presented and uh, you know, uh, reproduced himself hasn't been reproduced in the rest of the world, and therefore, our work is all about making these things applicable to the real world. Um, and certainly, in in our plaster room, we find it difficult to, to keep those things and and to get the non-union rates that that are described there. They're quite impressive, and I I don't think they've been reflected in the literature since a non-union rate of two percent. <clears throat> enclosed injuries and and six percent in open injuries from that initial Samiento paper, but it would be interesting if the hush actually will give us more information about whether or not um, or how that compares with operative treatment. Um, so it might be a bit of an unfair question, but um, what is the current optimal management of shaft fractures in the humerus for you? That's not unfair at all. It's a really simple answer. You recruit them to the hush trial. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, if uh, if I lived in an area that didn't have that enlightenment, I think it's really difficult. And I think I'm going to justify this by saying that I've read so much about this and, and I've read conflicting reports left and right. I often I often reflect on what I would do myself. Um, and, and as I sit here right now, I think I'd probably want a brace because the risks are low and the chance of working are good. But... I'm rubbish with pain. I hate being uh, uncomfortable. I do really badly if I don't sleep. And the idea of rolling around in bed and my arm clicking and clinking, clunking and clicking uh, means I could really imagine having my mind focused on the idea of having a piece of metal that holds everything steady. Um, and you know, other than the fact that the scar's got to got to heal, I can't see the scar. It's around the back usually. Um, so, I, th in order to give some sort of answer. I think I would say right here, right now, I'd have a splint, but I'd reserve the right to change that immediately if I ever hit the ground and, uh, and was rolling around the floor, uh, grabbing my arm. Quite diplomatic. <laughs> um, now a bit more of a uh, step away from hush. Let's talk a little bit about the radial nerve 
Does the, does the radial nerve palsy change humeral shaft management for you? In the acute setting, uh, it doesn't. So I think, I don't know the numbers needed to treat to explore radial nerves to, to protect one that would otherwise genuinely been been damaged and irreparably damaged. Um, I think that the my my management of the radial nerve, where I'm more definitive or more more certain, is the plastic surgeons that we work with are amazing, and I think that over time the threshold for them just to go, it's no problem, we'll explore it. You know, it really isn't a bother to us. So I think if people are not making any progress at that six-week mark, the point where you'd normally start requesting nerve conduction studies, in my knowledge that those conduction studies at the moment, there's a delay getting them often. And they often then, when they do come back, are ambiguous, by which point you need to repeat them anyway. I think my practice has become that if someone's got a nerve pause that's not recovering by six weeks in any way, then I think it's reasonable to take the alternative treatment plan, which is to fix it and to fix it where you have the added bonus of being able to explore the nerve at the fracture site. And, you know, with the benefit of a, of a friend or friendly uh, plastic surgeon, that is a much, uh, that's a very straightforward process. The, the one thing I, I through personal experience, am convinced by is that if you have a secondary nerve injury, so if you operate on someone, no matter how convinced you are that you haven't clobbered the nerve if a patient wakes up with a dense palsy and you haven't put local anesthetic in um, then I would re-explore those patients now um, I've certainly been the recipient of a phone call uh, from a colleague who's told me they're taking a case of mine go back, back to theatre and I, I remember feeling a little bit a little bit uh, taking umbrage like I think yeah, you know the nerve was absolutely fine and you know I don't know I've written in my op note the nerve was fine and you know when they explored it they found that it was kinked at the top of the plate and and I would always be grateful for the fact that they did that um, on my behalf uh, as the on-call team. So I, I've, I've now, the, the numbers are so low when that happens that I think that um, if, if there's doubt then that I would explore it now. So you have, to, you have to be realistic about the fact you may have made a mistake. Thank you very much. Now, whilst I have you here, I wanted to briefly touch on a few of the points from your proximal humeral talk. My first question about proximal humerus, and I guess this is something that can be translated to other aspects of surgery. What is kinesiophobia? That's a great question. Uh, so, um, so I'll get, should I give that statement some context? Sure. So, the, um, so we have looked into the predictors of outcome after... Uh, after upper limb trauma. And this is working with uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Prakash Jayakumar, who's now in the States. But his work was always was looking at uh, the predictors of outcome other than the shape of the broken bone or whether that was metal going in. And as part of that, we found that this concept called kinesiophobia uh, really predicts whether or not people do well or not well in terms of function and potentially uh, is something we can modify. So kinesiophobia is a fear of movement um, and fear of movement is a very natural and healthy process. So if you fall over and break your arm or leg, you probably don't want to wiggle it around too much. That's a healthy thing. Um, and then some people will go one or two ways. They'll either move it too much because they 
I've got that approach in life, which is just, I'm just going to work harder. It, it hurts, but I'm just going to work harder. And that can have a deleterious effect on your healing. And there are other people who are very cautious and protect their arm. And, and if they don't move it, then it becomes stiff and it becomes slightly alien to them. And we have to realize that as, as medics, as surgeons, as allied health professionals, our words have a huge impact. And you only need to spend a few minutes in the other seat of a medical consultation to realize the impact they do have. So people, just, you know, and I've heard it and I've, spent, I've said it in the past where you say to people, oh, you know, don't move it too much because the fracture might move. Can you imagine that if that's your arm and you're worried about, you know, displacing or doing bad or this thing dragging on, you would just sit there. I'd sit there grabbing my arm, doing nothing. And then when the x-ray and the doctor says to you, you can now move it, unsurprisingly, A, you're really worried, B, everything's stiff. So kinesiophobia is this is a process by which people have fear of movement and there's potentially a way in for us to be able to modify that uh, by by adapting the way we speak to patients and by ourselves understanding why we are or are not letting people move. And you know, the all the ankle fracture trials, looking into weight bearing, uh, all of that, the push to, to rehabilitate people early is partly to do with their functional recovery, at least as much as whether or not the bones stick together. Thank you. I really like that phrase, activate patients as well. And you had that, um, um, that at the end of your talk. So are there any ways in which we can actually empower patients in their own rehabilitation to achieve an optimal outcome? What should we be telling our patients? Well, uh, that's the next 10 years of work, I suspect. And, and uh, I think that today uh, in, in my clinical practice, uh, I try to give people the information to understand why I've made the decision I've made. And obviously, ideally, to engage them in, in the conversation and the decision making. And we always talk about joint decision making. Um, and that's the optimum outcome. Uh, I think often particularly in in a situation of trauma where patients don't have a lot of time to find out about the alternatives and they they don't know the literature and they haven't spent you know six months on google like they might have done with shoulder arthritis they are looking to us for guidance and i think that that giving guidance is a very good idea and ultimately we do there needs to be a a definitive treatment plan but i think patients understanding why we've come to the decision we have uh, and then believing that there are alternatives and believing that they have the ability to change that management plan if they want to uh, is really important. And that goes right back to that very core thing, you know, the, the doctor-patient relationship. We, had a, we heard a talk today where people talked about the spidey sense, you know, seeing patients are going, I think you need a bit more time. I think you need a bit more information or, you know what, you are looking for guidance here and, and I'm going to do that, but with the knowledge that you understand why why I'm doing what I'm doing and it's a really hard line to it's a really hard thing to define it's a really hard thing to teach uh, and in some ways thankfully it's a really hard thing to examine uh, as you know so if you've got doctors and surgeons coming through it's very hard to work out whether or not that person has the the patient rapport that's needed to empower someone um, and like I say that's quite helpful for for people in some ways but also is a real shame because it means that we don't focus on it the same way that we focus on technical ability and the ability to retain facts but actually I think probably if we look at it is the reason why lots of us went into medicine because we're drawn to that aspect of it 
That was really great. Thank you so much. So um, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure our listeners are very grateful. And uh, for everyone out there, just remember, make sure you sign up for the Hush Trial.